0: Welcome to The Drabblecast, episode 359. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Another trifecta special for you folks this week, three great stories by three different authors, all based around some theme. Our theme this week, Unnatural Growth. We bring you They Sent Runners Out by Sarah Pinsker, The Liver by Andrew Kozma, and Caretaker in the Garden of Dreams by David Tallerman. Sarah Pinsker's fiction's been published in Strange Horizons, Asimov's, Lightspeed, and here on the Travelcast. She lives in Baltimore, Maryland, and her yard has recently been colonized by feral strawberries. Yum. Andrew Kozma's fictions been or will be published in Daily Science Fiction, Third Flatitron, Albedo One, and Stupefying Stories. And David Tallerman's short fictions appeared in numerous markets, including Lightspeed, Clark's World, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, and Nightmare Magazine. He's also the author of three novels, Giant Thief, Crown Thief, and Prince Thief, as well as the graphic novel Endangered Weapon B, Mechanimal Science. Guest producing our stories this week is my man, David Cummings, host and showrunner of the No Sleep Podcast, a multi-award-winning anthology series of original short horror stories that I highly endorse you check out, that is, if you're a fan of extremely well-produced horror. David's from Toronto and has since made the podcasting thing his full-time career. He's extraordinarily talented, so that comes as no surprise. They Sent Runners Out is read by Erica Sanderson, an actor, director, and voice artist from England, The Liver by Peter Lewis, a voice actor and author based in Denver who also is a regular contributor to the No Sleep Podcast, and Caretaker in the Garden of Dreams is read by David himself. Hope you enjoy. So let's get growing. Unnaturally, of course, because Drabblecast wouldn't have it any other way. We bring you They Sent Runners Out by Sarah Pinsker, The Liver by Andrew Kosma, and Caretaker in the Garden of Dreams by David Tallerman.
1: My twin brother had been a dry-eyed baby, and he grew into a dry-eyed boy. Yakov, why don't you ever cry? I asked him the day we buried my uncle's family. He shrugged. Maybe you carry the tears for both of us, Anna. I thought he might be right. In the past month, I had cried again and again. I had wept through the night of hiding in the root cellar among the onions and potatoes and jars of pickled vegetables, my face buried in our mother's skirt. We emerged in the morning to discover the Cossacks had burnt down the barn with all of our animals trapped inside. I cried again for the goats. We didn't even know yet that our cousins down the road had suffered the same fate. Our two older siblings took their turns calming me but I took the most comfort from Yakov's stoic face. We kept to the house for weeks after the funeral. The snow fell and fell. It changed the landscape, muting the scorched beams and bones of the barn. Without our animals, we had only the vegetables from the cellar. We ate those until Mama announced she would walk into the village to find more food. Yakov and I went with her, The sky was grey and the trees were bare, and the snow went from white to grey to white again where new covered old. We walked grey roads to the grey village to trade our grey potatoes to grey-faced merchants. All the colour in the world seemed to have burnt up on the night of the fires. The village no longer seemed the friendly face I once thought it. Mama warned us that the men who'd come in the night had been neighbours and I eyed everyone with new suspicion. She told us to keep to ourselves and not to look for the village children to play with as we usually did. So Yakov and I settled in a doorway to play with our small wooden top. I could feel the cold stone through my woollen layers. Give it here. We looked up to see a Cossack boy. I don't think he was much bigger than either of us, but we were on the ground and he loomed like a giant. Yakov closed his fist around the top. Neither of us expected the kick to Yakov's chin. Ah! I don't think the boy did either. He ran away as soon as he'd boot connected. I burst into tears and it took me a moment to realize that Yakov was crying too. Behind his tears came flowers, small and white with yellow centers. They flowed from his eyes on runner stems and became strawberries as I watched. The bright red of the berries seemed like a new colour invented from nothing. I'm not sure which shocked me more. The berries, or the fact that something had made Yakov cry. I picked one and held it in my palm. It felt real. I rolled it in my mouth, touching the seeds with my tongue. When I bit into it, the taste was an explosion of summer. Three more grew before Yakov stopped crying and the plant shriveled and fell from his face. I gave him two. He wiped his nose on his sleeve and rolled the berries in his mouth as I had. He carried them in his cheeks on the walk home. His scarf pulled up over his face so Mama wouldn't see the blooming bruise. That night, when she would normally be cooking, our mother sat at the table and studied her hands. Yakov and I watched from under the bed. Nobody would trade with me, she told our father. We had eaten the last of the pickled beets, and the potatoes that were left were shriveled and mealy. I rolled over to look at Yakov. Then, before I could reconsider my action, I punched him on his bruised chin. He gasped. Tears ran down his face, just as they had before, followed by stems and leaves, then flowers, then berries. I picked the berries and kissed his forehead. One of my own ordinary tears leaked from the corner of my eye. I'm sorry. I scrambled out from under the bed. Don't worry, Mama. Look, Yakov found these for you. I held out my hands to show her six small, perfect strawberries. She took one from me, holding it as carefully as an egg. She smiled at me her first smile in weeks. Thank you, Anala. Thank you, Yaakov, under the bed. Why don't you find a bowl for those? We ate potato soup, followed by a strawberry for each of us. Our father led us in Shechanayu, the prayer to thank God for having sustained us and brought us to this day. I only mouthed the words. The berries left everyone in a good mood After dinner, we sang and danced around the house. Over the weeks that followed, as we stretched the last of the last of our food, I bent Yakov's fingers and pulled his ears and twisted his arms behind his back. If I did any one thing too often, it ceased to make him cry. I found ways. Anything to see the strawberries send their runners out, then grow into that strange quickened version of springtime. I understand, Yakov said each time. I didn't understand. For the first time, I felt distant from him. And so I hurt my brother over and over. He let me. We bore the secret together. I had a second secret that I kept to myself. Sometime during the long winter, I learnt to hold back my own tears. When the first real strawberries of spring arrived, they didn't taste nearly as sweet.
2: that rock his skeleton like a typhoon. From the stories I'd heard before coming here, I believed there were moments of rest, times when the liver was fully eaten or fully regenerated, pauses where the hideous universe could take a breath, look on its mighty work, and be satisfied. But the liver never stops growing. It's a cancer, slowly eating away at the god's ever-healing body. The edges of the open wound revealing the liver dip down into the liver itself like the edges of a sinkhole. A few days unchecked and the liver makes inroads into the vacant stomach into the soft marrow of the spine it is hungry as the night as unstoppable as the sun the reddish-gray clay of it eagerly digesting form into formlessness I eat the liver I tear at it with my ill-equipped beak and though each snip of the ripe flesh elicits a wince from the god of invention, he does not complain. My stomach fills so quickly, the god flesh is rich as butter, as fermented fruit. I have to spit out the rest far enough away, the liver doesn't slink its way back like a slug and reattach itself. There was a vulture here before me, but eventually the work of the job drove him away. Why constantly prune at a veritable forest of fresh meat when you can laze around the sky and find rotten remains just waiting for you anywhere you go? No work involved. No responsibility. The vulture told me, that before he took over, there was an eagle. She was the one originally given the job of torturing the poor god, and she did her duty for centuries. She hated liver. She sawed at the burgeoning organ as though it were an iron chain tying her to the ground. After she cut out the entire liver, only to have it spring forth again from nothing, like a blade of grass from a dry dirt field. That was it. She fed herself to the god to end her own punishment, and it was her rotting corpse that drew the vulture to the feast. I talked to the god in between the necessary surgeries, The world beyond his prison has grown so large and strange, it's as real as a dream to him, and his dreams now are all fire and pain. It's been so long since I've been in the world that the stories I tell him are all lies of redemption. The wolf who murdered a thousand rabbits saved from a trap by a kindly squirrel. Or the king's executioner forgiven at the chopping block by the convicted. He thanks me for keeping him company. Says I'm a kindly bird, a compassionate raven. Ravens aren't compassionate eat the liver as a service, and in the beginning I expected to be paid. Someday the god would be freed, and he'd weigh my wings down with riches beyond measure. All the bright things in the world inscribed with my name, my beak copper-bright forever, and needle-sharp The god would be grateful to the companion that stayed with him until the end. The god would make me his emblem. Take me with him everywhere. Listen carefully to my advice. Until I became a god myself. The god of ravens. Except. The liver won't stop growing. It pulses out with new nodules of integument marbled meat every minute. If I sleep too close, I wake with the liver hugging my wing or leg, enfolding me within it. My dreams are drowning in clotted blood. I want to leave. I want to fly away and forget this corner of the world where torture is eternal and punishment never ends. But I know the liver would keep on growing. It would embrace the god's body, insist him inside itself, and continue to swell, an organ unbounded. It would filter the rock, the water, the air, all impurities would be reduced to liver. A mountain of meat would rise where the god once hung, yet that still wouldn't be enough. And eventually, there would be nowhere to run.
3: Hunching his shoulders against the bitter wind, Gug Shabath gazed out over the long field. When he tutted beneath his breath, the ka stirred in alarm from the branches overhead, circled once amidst the twilight sky, and then returned to their perches to glare down at his tumescent head with belligerent, crimson eyes. They didn't fear him, and after all, why should they? They could easily dodge any attack his malformed arms might make. Gog Shabath returned his watery stare to the long field. There, other birds had nestled amongst the crop, their leathery wings tucked around them like cloaks, their proboscises probing the strange fruits that grew there. The Scarecrow he'd built was nothing now but a cruciform frame, draped with scraps of graying meat. He was failing in his responsibility. But if they had ever intended him to succeed, ever cared at all, then they would not have made him so carelessly. Every thought, every step would not be such torment. No, the gods had little time for this patch of their creation, if indeed they had time for any of it, in their wantonness and their cruelty. Still, what he lacked in form did not change his function. Gug Shabeth trudged painfully down the mound and onto the field, felt his feet dragged down into the ebon soil. The nearest Ka took flight and circled warily, their tiny faces expressing outrage at the interruption of their meal. When he grunted at them, they dispersed resentfully to wait him out in the tree line. With all the time in the world, they could afford a little patience. Gog Shabath turned his attention to his crop. Each chi was roughly spherical, its root invisible beneath the earth. Each was translucent, and visible within was layer inside layer, until at the very center there shone a blue flame that shimmered and flowed. Some shone brightly, others only dimly. Every so often, one would flicker out altogether and in an instant, the shell that housed it would rot and congeal into the earth as if it had never been. Many others showed signs of where the Ka births had fed. The outer leaves were split and raggedy or gouged away altogether. From those nearby, Gug Shabeth selected the chi that glowed most palely. He dug into the hard earth until the stump of its root was exposed, levered it free, and tucked it under one arm. Above, the cowbirds whistled their protest. How dare this shambling thing touch their food? Annoyed as much by the pain in his gnarled fingers, Gog Shabeth turned his face to the stars and howled in fury and the birds spanned skywards in a whirl of panic and charcoal feathers. He glared after them for a moment, and then trudged back across the field, the uprooted chi still cradled beneath his arm. Laboriously, Gug Shabeth clambered over the stile that crossed the fence and dropped heavily to the ground on the other side. The path was barely visible as a stain stretching into the darkness. Arriving at the foot of the hill, he crossed the bridge there, ignoring the cloying lap and sugary scent of the waters running beneath his feet. Beyond, the path rose again, but he bent his weight into the incline and gritted his mangled teeth and made no sound of complaint for who was there to listen or to care? Finally, he came to the peak of the rise, and beyond was his home and the garden that grew about it, nebulous as ever under the perpetual twilight. Gug Shabeth sat the chi on a rock and stared at it intently, until he was sure its flame still burnt, however slightly. Satisfied, he turned his attention to the meat garden. Though it had been here when he first arrived, it was he who had nurtured it and had built his home beside it. While it was his to use as he saw fit, he harvested its produce only when he had to. Milky orbs gazed back at him from beneath frayed pink leaves, Bleached femur branches dwindled to thin tibia and patella. Fingerbone twigs grew in weedy clusters. And everywhere hung clusters of moist red orbs, their thick sap dripping to clot in the tissue grass. Gug Shabath set about his task. He took windfall where he could, or picked from the lowest branches and from the ground foliage. Still, his muscles ached terribly, particularly his hopelessly crooked back. Yet, when he began to work, there was nimbleness in his fingers, and he partly forgot the pain. The more he crafted, the more his discomfort subsided, the faster his knotted fingers spun in the damp air. For once, Gug Shabeth had been a fine craftsman. And though he didn't remember those times, yet some part of him awoke sometimes and worked marvels. Soon, where he labored in the clearing at the heart of the garden, there was another body before him. If its dimensions were strange, it was better made, at least, than he himself. Gug Shabeth stood back with a rumble of satisfaction. He returned to the stump, checked the chi one last time, and saw it was still lit, though barely. He carried it back to the clearing with both hands. When he reached the still body, he knelt over it and dug his nails deep into the skin of the chi, prizing it in two with a sigh of exertion. Softly hissing, it split like an eggshell, and the glimmer of flame dripped out and into the open mouth of Guggshabeth's creation. For a long while afterwards, there was nothing but the sigh of wind in the bleeding willow and the croak of distant insects. Then the thing opened its eyes and stared up at Shabeth and screamed. It lay screaming for what seemed an age, but eventually the noise became hoarse and was strangled off with a gurgling cough. Gug Shabath sat patiently on his haunches and waited. Eventually the thing sat up, glanced fearfully about it, and said in a voice hardly above a whisper, This isn't right. I'm not supposed to be here. Gug Shabath, whose sharp teeth were crammed haphazardly into his mouth and whose tongue was a useless stump, could not speak to answer it. Instead, he stood up and started towards the gate of the garden and motioned for it to follow. After a while, it fell in behind him. There was an accident, it said. I remember an accident, and then darkness for a long, long time." Gug Shabath grunted sympathetically and started up the path beyond the gate. The thing he'd made followed nervously behind him, speaking in snatches, not seeming to care that he didn't answer it. Am I dreaming? It asked is this a nightmare he let it down the incline and over the bridge up the hill beyond and between the trees and over the ancient style and all the while it mumbled to itself and asked questions that he had no means of answering when they stepped onto the packed black earth of the long field it said am i dead am i in hell Gug Shabeth shook his head and pointed towards the crucifix at the center of the field. It gazed back at him with anxious eyes, then crossed over to the dilapidated frame and inspected it warily. Gug Shabeth came up behind it, caught hold of one foot, and lifted it into place upon the lower bar. He strapped it in place with the thong of leather hung there and turned his attention to the other. What are you doing? The thing asked nervously. It made as if to struggle, then seemed to think better of it, and glared at him instead. As his creation, it couldn't resist him any more than Gug Shabbath could defy his own function. He eased its arms into place across the wide crossbar and bound those two. The creature flailed a little, testing its bonds. Finding it could move no more than its head, it began to wail softly. Gug Shabath wasn't without pity, but he understood necessity and knew too that his little construction housed a chi that would soon have faded and passed. He had merely borrowed it a while from the order of things. Its suffering would be short and worthwhile. As he walked away, back towards his home amidst the meat garden, he could hear the thing screaming behind him as the first of the Ka-birds settled on it. A living chi fascinated them so much so that they would abandon the easy, plentiful pickings growing around them for it. Yet it would take them a long while to search out their prize from its prison of flesh. He had hidden it carefully and deep. For that while, his crop would be safe. Soon enough, he would have to build another another construct of meat with one fading chi nestled within it as sacrifice to keep its kin safe. Soon, but not yet. And, for a time at least, Gug Shabbath could rest his weary bones and be at peace.
0: That was our trifecta. Hope you enjoyed it. Let's hit our hundred-character story winner this week by longtime Drebblecast fan Eric Marsh. Here goes. The alien said that humanity is too violent to join the Federation. Of course, we couldn't let an insult like that stand. 100 character stories, not counting spaces. We call them Twabbles, and we post one on our Twitter feed each week at the Drabblecast. Follow us there if you aren't already. We pick it from our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org under the Twabbles thread, where anyone can post. Give it a shot. You might be next week's winner. Alright folks, that's our show this week. Remember, The Travelcast has brought you the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Special thanks to our awesome episode artist this week, Declan Keane. Declan's a practitioner of the dreaded occult art of graphic design. Between sneaking in esoteric references into his work, and attempting to bind a djinn to take exams for him, he enjoys doing as many freelance jobs as possible to fill the endless void. Distract Declan from the sheer insignificance of his life by summoning him at www.declankeendesign.com. Our program this week was brought to you by Chief Editor Nathan Lee, our Art Director Bo Kyer, with additional help from Nikki Drayden, Tom Baker, David Carvin, and David Steffen. We'll see you next week, Weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman reminding you there was an accident and then darkness for a long, long time.